0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings, chapter 17. It's in the church Bible on page 299. I'll just say what a privilege it is uh, to preach this morning at College Church. Our family really, really benefits from the ministry here in so many ways. It's a good church home for us. Uh, it's good to see Dr. and Mrs. Moody sitting in the front pew on Mother's Day, uh, and a real privilege to be asked to bring God's Word uh, this morning. I wanted to do something that would be encouraging. Uh, this is not a, um, uh, this is a message of gospel grace, not law, for uh, the women of College Church, for our mothers, and for all of us. 1 Kings 17, I'm going to begin reading at verse 8. Um, actually, maybe I'll begin reading at verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is, the prophet Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first give me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You may have noticed our title this morning, Faith of Our Mothers. For some reason, the, the, the phrase faith of our fathers is a catchphrase and faith of our mothers isn't. Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me because as I survey the history of the church, I see so many examples of extraordinary women of God who were distinguished by their strong faith in Jesus Christ. Young and old, Married and single, these are our spiritual mothers. I just jotted down this week a short list of some of my favorite examples. I hope you have some favorite examples of your own. I go back to Alexandria, ancient Alexandria in Egypt, where it was customary for families that did not want to keep their children simply to leave them out in the street by night, and for Christian women to gather them up and raise them as their own. I think of poor Monica in the city of Hippo in northern Africa, languishing in prayer for her son, Augie, so gifted intellectually and yet wasting his life, wasting his life with drink and with women and all manner of things. Her prayers were answered her son, came to faith in Jesus Christ. He became Augustine, the great theologian of the church. It was his mother's prayers that brought him into the kingdom. Think of the phrase, I love this phrase, that the ancient professor of rhetoric, Loctantius, who was in Antioch, this was not in a Christ-centered school. It was in a secular academy, but he knew John Chrysostom, a young man in his class who was a believer, became a famous preacher in the church. Chrysostom started talking about his mother as a single parent, everything that she had done to provide for her children, to give them educational opportunity. Octantius heard the story. He looked at the rest of the class. He said, what women these Christians have. And you could say that again and again through the history of the church. I think, for example, of Calvin's Geneva. A city of 10,000 welcomed 10,000 refugees. Now, I suppose the men of Geneva did something for that, but honestly, who do you think did most of the work of welcoming strangers into a home, providing them, making a house, a home that would welcome outsiders? And I could just go on and on. Lilius Trotter setting aside such a prominent career in the arts to go and be a missionary, a pioneer missionary in Algeria. I think of Margaret Clarkson, who from her earliest days suffered chronic, debilitating illness, just out in the swing set at home, humming little songs to her, herself about Jesus and eventually becoming a marvelous hymn writer. I think of uh, Helen Roosevelt. Missionary stateswoman, who as in her African mission station, as her team was being attacked, she herself was being violated, was reflecting on the privilege of being united to Christ, joined to him not only in spiritual suffering, but in physical suffering for the sake of the gospel. I think of our own Margaret Taylor, right here at College Church, basically uh, doing all of the business side of what became a global publishing business, and by the way, raising ten children on the side. The world is not worthy of them. What more shall I say? As it would say in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith they rescued infants, by faith they fed the poor, by faith they prayed their children into the kingdom, by faith they traveled to the far ends of the earth with the gospel. This is the kind of legacy that we have in our spiritual mothers. And what I want to suggest to you this morning, what I want to urge upon you, encourage you in Jesus' name, is that you too, whoever you are, can live this same life of faith And we have such a marvelous example of it for us in this Bible uh, Bible story this morning in 1 Kings chapter 17, where we are simply instructed to trust God, really trust Him for our daily needs, and to trust Him for life, eternal life. Trust Him for your daily needs. I start with Elijah in verse 7. He was a man stretched to the limits of his faith. He had been living in the wilderness for three years. God had decreed no rain would fall on Israel because of the sin and the idolatry of that nation. And Elijah, as prophet, went out to a little brook and he cupped his hand and drank water from the brook every day. And marvelous to say there were ravens who came to bring him a little bread and a little meat each day. But Elijah watched that brook become a stream, and then a creek, and then a little trickle, and then it was just a dry wadi in the desert. Some people's faith would wither away in the time it took for a brook to disappear. But Elijah was still trusting in God. And so when God's Word came to him again, As it does here in verse 8, and God says to him, get up and go to Zarephath, and I'm going to provide for your needs there, Elijah obeyed. And he obeyed even though he might have imagined that God was joking. I mean, of all the places to send a prophet from Israel, would you send someone to Sidon? I say that because if you look back in chapter 16 at verse 31, the Scripture says that wicked Ahab, I mean one of the worst of all the kings of Israel, took for his wife Jezebel, and she was surely the worst of all the queens, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Sidon was that evil queen's stomping grounds. It was basically Baal's home territory, Baal, the Really, the enemy of the people of God, that false god Baal who promised so much and delivered so little. When Elijah went to Sidon, he was going to a place of brazen idolatry and unholy sacrifice and temple prostitution, everything that went along with the worship of the false god Baal. God was sending his prophet right into the cesspool of sin, not just to go there, but verse 9, to dwell there. I suppose most of us would rather go to a safe spiritual space, if in fact there is such a thing. But many of us are called to go to places where our faith is under fire every day. Some of you know about that in your school situation, your work situation, your neighborhood relationships. And here we have an example of a man who was sent by God into just that kind of place with the promise that God would go with him and help him and enable him to do the work that God was calling him to do in that place. If you feel God has called you to go to a hard place, know that he is right there with you to help you. Elijah went with that kind of confidence. He got to the city of Gates. And things did not look very promising. There had been no more rain in Sidon than there was in Israel. Apparently, it wasn't just the Israelites that God was teaching theology, but also the Sidonians, that He is the God of rain, that He is the God who provides, that He is the God who sends every good and perfect gift. This was the lesson that the Sidonians were were being taught. Elijah came to the city. You could see a woman there gathering sticks, just a poor woman. Can you, can you imagine her there in your mind's eye? This woman who's been hungry for many days, desperate to provide for her family. Elijah hardly seems to have the courage to ask her for a whole meal. He, he first says, just, just bring me a little water in a vessel. And then as she's walking away, he grows a little bolder And he says, Bring me also this, uh, uh, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He wasn't asking for much, not much of a handout, but even this was too much for the woman to give. She she turns and she lets him know in no uncertain terms this is not not a good time for an out of town guest. She, She has hardly enough on hand to make a muffin, let alone bake a loaf of bread. And yet Elijah, in all of this, trusts for himself and for all who will trust in God, that God will provide. And so he, he, tell, he orders his meal, even though he knows she's down to her last meal. He says, verse 13, don't fear, go and do as you have said, but first bring me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Elijah was trusting the promise of God that he would provide daily bread. He was calling the widow, To that kind of faith as well. He was calling her to become, by God's grace, a spiritual mother. She was scraping the bottom of the barrel, literally. But but Elijah knew that God's resources cannot be exhausted. That jar of flour, he said, that jug of oil, it will be enough. It will not go empty until the day when rain falls upon the earth again. May I ask you what you need this morning? Some provision, perhaps. You think on your health circumstances, perhaps. Surely some in this church who are looking for work. Some who are concerned about educational expenses. Some with debts to pay, unexpected things that have come up that need to be provided for. Or maybe just the... Broken relationships that you're dealing with in your family or the burdens that you're carrying for others, praying for them, interceding for them, asking God to provide. The the message of Scripture for us this morning is that God does provide, that Elijah trusted in God, so did this widow, and their faith was well-placed because God keeps His Word. She did what the prophet said, and what is the result? She and he and her household ate For many days, the jar didn't run out, the jug didn't run dry, there there weren't any leftovers, nothing you could put in a Ziploc bag and freeze for tomorrow. This was daily provision, it required the daily exercise of faith, but that faith was met with God's daily provision couldn't help but think of this story without being reminded of Corrie ten Boom. Probably a few of you have been thinking of that already because you know part of her story. Talk about a mother in the faith, Corrie ten Boom, the marvelous Dutch Christian, imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp because she and her family had welcomed Jews into their home. During their time in camp, Betsy became ill. I want to describe for you what their experience was. I'll just read from her book, The Hiding Place. She says, Another strange thing was happening. The bottle, this is the bottle of medicine, was continuing to produce drops that scarcely seemed possible. So small a bottle. So many doses. Now, in addition to Betsy, dozens of others were taking it. My instinct was always to hoard it. But others were ill, not just Betsy. It was hard to say no to eyes that burned with fever and hands that shook with chill. I tried to save it for the very weakest, but even these soon numbered 15, 20, 25, and still every time I tilted the little bottle, a drop appeared at the tip of the glass stopper. It it couldn't be. I held it up to the light, trying to see how much was left, but the dark brown glass was too thick to see through. There was a woman in the Bible, Betsy said whose oil jar was never empty. Betsy's sister turned in the Scriptures to the book of Kings, to the story of the poor widow of Zarephath. And Betsy remarks, it was one thing to believe that such things were possible thousands of years ago, another to have it happen now to us today. And yet it happened this day and the next and the next until a little group of spectators stood around, watching the drops fall onto the daily rations of bread. Many nights I lay awake, trying to fathom the marvel of God's supply lavished upon us. Maybe, I whispered to Betsy, only a molecule or two gets through that little pinhole, and then in the air it expands. I heard her soft laughter in the dark. Don't try too hard to explain it, Corey. Just accept it as a surprise from a Father in Heaven who loves you. Corey goes on to explain that at a certain point, one of the prisoners received a special uh, treasure, a package that had in it a large supply of vitamins. And her first thought was, well, let's just use the drops until we need the vitamins. And of course, that was the day she discovered there was nothing left in the jar at all. But now God had a new way to supply through the vitamins that had been provided, maybe an ordinary, following the miraculous means of provision. The point is that that these people knew the same God that Elijah knew and that the, the widow of Zarephath knew. He is a God who provides for His people when they pray. Have you found this to be true in your own experience? Is it something that God is testing you to believe today? The Scripture says that those who fear the Lord lack for no good thing. And so trust Him for everything you truly need. And don't think it's just for for miracles of some bygone day either. I was encouraged this week. My sister-in-law told us the story of a friend in Texas. The family was out of work. They'd been out of work for a long time. The husband went to the drawer in the kitchen... $15 of cash. That was all that was left after they spent all their savings. He took a $10 bill with him into the city to pay for parking for what turned out to be eventually the job interview that led to the job that led to God's provision for their family all over again. But that was still in the future. His wife went to the drawer. She had been praying that God would provide enough for groceries. She expected to find only a $5 bill. There was 65 bucks in there. It's enough to provide for their family for the next few days, which is what they truly needed. Now, how do you suppose 60 extra dollars got into their drawer? Well, maybe they miscounted. Although I have to say, when I'm down to my last $15, I'm pretty sure no matter how many times I check, it's still $15. (laughs) Maybe somebody... Slipped into their house, put some money in the drawer. Maybe it was a miracle. I, I don't know. I just know the God that I believe in is never short of cash. He has a way of providing for his people. Sometimes ordinary, sometimes extraordinary. But when you trust Him, really trust on Him, trust in Him, He finds a way to provide what is truly needed. Trust Him for daily needs, and then trust Him for this as well, for the saving grace. Of everlasting life. This is an Old Testament story about life in a situation where death is a very real threat and it points us on a a literal level to what is also literal and that is the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. What I want to show you as we think about this woman's circumstances is that God's grace, His saving grace, is really for everyone, because you look at her circumstances, and somewhere you can find yourself in her story. She's weak, almost helpless, and God's saving grace is for those who are weak and truly helpless. Here is a woman without the protection so necessary in that culture, and in many cultures, maybe most, without the Protection, family protection of a a man serving as a husband, a father, or a protector. And her son too was at a great disadvantage without living, living without the security of a father in the home, that model of godly manliness day by day. And here they are. All they have is a few sticks. A fistful of flour, a few drops of oil, how weak, how helpless. And yes, and yet God's grace, His saving grace is for those who are weak and helpless. He doesn't favor the rich, the wealthy, and the famous. On the contrary, the Scripture says, this is Deuteronomy chapter chapter 10, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. These are the ones who find His favor. What a beautiful promise. And we see the promise fulfilled. Here in 1 Kings 17, this fatherless child defended, this husbandless woman protected God's saving grace for them. And the point is His saving grace is for everyone. If you feel like you don't have much going for you in life, you certainly have this, that God has promised to help those who are weak, those who are in need. His saving grace is for everyone from the least to the greatest. It is also for those who as of yet, are outside of his spiritual family, which for us would be the church. This woman is a spiritual outsider. She's a good woman. She's well-mannered. She is willing to give some help. To someone who is in need, at least within her resources, she follows the custom of that a woman would follow in that culture of drawing water for a man who asks. She's also a woman who believes in the existence of God. Notice carefully what she says in verse 12. As the Lord your God lives. Now, it may simply have been a manner of speaking. Strange to say, but even people who really don't believe in God that much find a way of working him into their conversation. So help me God. God bless you, they might say. And this may be that kind of conventional expression, but it seems to me that it's here in the Scriptures for our instruction. And here is a woman who is living in Baal's hometown and yet confessing that the God of Elijah is a living God. But He's not her God. No, she says, as the Lord, your God, lives. He may be Elijah's God, but he is not yet her God. It's a, it's a second-person relationship, not a first-person relationship. She hasn't put her own personal faith, trust, confidence in the God of Israel. She is still outside that family of God, and she knows it. I wonder if I can ask what your relationship to God is. Are you in close or still... Someone on the outside looking in, evaluating, wondering whether you might possibly become a follower of Christ. Many people stay outside the family of God. They, they're trying to live a good moral life. They may, in, a, in one sense, believe that there is a God, but He has not yet become their God in a way that you could really trust through a life of prayer and identify strongly that you have made a commitment as a Christian to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe a simple illustration can help convey the point. If you walk down this street, you could walk all the way down to the Chase Bank. I've been banking there for a long time, about 40 years, I guess. And you may believe that there is money in the bank. There's probably a vault in there. I've never actually personally seen it. I certainly haven't seen what's inside. I believe that there is money in the bank. But it doesn't really matter to me unless it's my money. Unless I've made my deposit, unless I've entrusted to the bank my resources so that that I know that there is something that I can draw upon in time of need. And that's an analogy, imperfect and yet perhaps a true one, of what it's like to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You can believe that there is a God, that He has power over life and death, but what is that really to you unless you have put your own faith deposit in the one true God, trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the forgiveness of your sins, as the hope of eternal life. Until you do that, you are still outside the family of God. But here is good news for you from the scriptures this morning. If you're outside, God has grace for you. He wants to bring you in. That's the whole point of this passage. The living God sent Elijah out to to the widow of Zarephath so that she might come home to the family of God. That's It's the invitation God is giving you this morning to leave your sins behind, to come in to Christ for salvation. And if you need any encouragement, well, you can take the words of Jesus for it. This is one of those passages that's easier to preach because there's something about it in the New Testament. Let me just encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus gives us His little sermon on 1 Kings 17. He had been preaching to his neighbors and friends in the town of Nazareth. They they thought he was a good boy from a good family, but they, they didn't particularly want to hear his message of repentance and faith. Ultimately, they rejected him. They wouldn't listen to him. It reminded Jesus of 1 Kings 17. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 24. He says, "...Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, But I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now there's a lot going on here. This is partly a rebuke to all the spiritual insiders in Israel who refused to believe in Jesus But it is also a message of amazing grace and hospitality and welcome. Jesus is explicit about it. Here is a woman from Sidon. She's not from Israel. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And yet the message of salvation is sent to her so that she might belong to the family of God. And Jesus is giving a message here about His gospel, His grace. It's for all whom the Lord our God will choose to save, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And our spiritual mother, the widow of Zarephath, received this grace as an outsider who was coming in, and the grace was going out to her even before she believed. It's how gracious God is. It's really a passage about the doctrine of election, God's sovereign choice and saving grace. We would never have heard the good news unless someone brought it to us, unless God sent His Word to us, and we never would have believed it. Unless by his spirit he had given to us the gift of faith. But this is what God has done from beginning to end. His salvation is a gift of his grace. And it's a grace that brings life out of death. This grace is for those who are about to die. That's what the widow of Zarephath was facing. She was really clear about it. I'm going to, to gather, bake, eat, and then die. Our words have a ring of resignation about them. It's inevitable. In fact, I wonder if Elijah had arrived a week later or two weeks later, if, if they even would have been alive for him to meet. He came just in time. God's grace was coming to them just in time. It was really life or death for them. Now, maybe you think you have a long time to live and you can keep pushing off your spiritual decision. It's something you can do later. After college, when you get married, if you get married, maybe on your deathbed, maybe that's how far you're going to push it back. But you don't really know how long you have. I've, over the years, saved many examples, you know, preachers do this kind of thing, of remarkable stories of sudden death or miraculous deliverance unto life. I think of the tenor, Richard Versali. This was in 1995. He was singing at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. It was in the opening act of the Macropolis case. The line that he was singing said, You can only live so long. Well, truer words were never spoken. He was struck with a heart attack. He died on stage. He didn't expect that. No one does. And so it is important, vital, necessary, life and death, for us to make sure that we have a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in Him. And His grace comes to those who are about to die. If you're in that situation, God's grace is for you. That's, that's part of the message here in 1 Kings 17. Yes, it's about a physical death, a physical deliverance, but it's really a story about ultimately pointing us to spiritual life, eternal life, life in Christ forever. God's grace is for each and every one of us. For the weak, for the helpless, for outsiders, for those in every desperate circumstance. Provided that we come to Him in faith. That's the example this widow sets for us as our spiritual mother. She put her confidence in God. She trusted the word of the prophet that had come to her. And did you notice how severely God tested her faith? It's just a small, t- small detail, but I think very significant in verse 13. Notice what Elijah says. He says, don't be afraid, but he also says this, first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Now, if I had been the widow of Zarephath, I would have wanted to negotiate on these points a little bit. I mean, Elijah had made it all the way from the Careth Ravine to Sidon. She might have said, Lord, you, uh, your prophet looks like he could survive another day. Why don't you just let me take care of my needs today, and then I can think about what you're calling me to do tomorrow. That's not the way faith works. God calls you to take that step of obedient trust, and then you find His provision. He doesn't answer all your questions first. If it's clear to Him what He's calling you to do, the thing to do is simply to do it. Follow Him into it, and then you will find His provision, His grace, His salvation. That's that's the way faith works, otherwise it wouldn't be faith. And her confidence was so well trusted. She did what Elijah said, and she found God's provision day after day until the rains returned. She and her son were kept in life. And I think in a real sense, we can see her as receiving in trusting in the God of Elijah, the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. I think we can apply the words that Jesus spoke to His disciples. He said, "'Whoever receives you receives Me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward.' And that's how the widow of Zarephath received Elijah as a prophet sent from God, one of the first messengers of the gospel, a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Receiving him was as good as receiving Jesus himself and with him the gift of eternal life. This widow surely now has her reward. Not just daily bread, but the gift of life, not just earthly earthly life, but eternal life, the life that God promises to all of his children. This woman of faith is one of our spiritual mothers, and you know the best way to honor your mother, your spiritual mother? It's to put the same trust in Jesus that she does. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for this story of faith and of your grace. It's good for us to pause this morning, Lord, and reflect on some of our mothers in the faith who have set the example for us by their deep trust and abiding confidence. Lord, would you be gracious to us as you have been to them and give us a strong faith in Jesus, faith for daily needs, faith that will lead to eternal life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.